0: Hello and welcome, and thank you for all joining us tonight, making it out in the rain and, um, and getting the message that we'd move to ACME. Um, I'd like to thank Helen Simonson and everyone at ACME um, for letting us come here at such late notice in the rain, <laughs> taking us in from our, um, our pavilion in the park. Um, we are thrilled to welcome um, Jan Vo to Melbourne and, and to M Pavilion in Spirit, but ACME X. Um, in reality. Um, and we'd also like to thank Jason Smith from the Geelong Gallery for um, being here tonight to spark the conversation. Um, we'd also like to acknowledge um, that this is the land of the Boon Wurrung people um, and I'd like to acknowledge any elders past, present and the future and I acknowledge any Aboriginal people here tonight. Uh, I'm Jessie French, I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M and I'll leave it to Jason and Yann. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jan, welcome. It's so good to have you in Melbourne. I know you arrived today? Today, yeah. Today, after a couple of days in Sydney. And thanks to M Pavilion particularly for the great privilege of this uh, opportunity to extend our interaction with your work. There are many people in the audience, clearly, who are fans and who have... Uh, seen your work and particularly, perhaps, I hope many of us have seen uh, the Venice Binali uh, work in 2015 in the Danish Pavilion and the uh, concurrent project at the Punta Della Dorgana, uh Slip of the Tongue. So we'll get to the interconnection between those two projects, Mother Tongue in the Danish Pavilion and Slip of the Tongue in the Punta Della Dogana. Uh, But by way of introduction, before I ask Jan to reflect initially on something of his uh, childhood in Copenhagen and the reason for being there, uh, and aspects of his biography before we talk about the work, and we're just talking, there are no visuals uh, this evening, Uh, I wouldn't mind just giving a brief uh, bit of recent background. You've been in Mexico for the past two years, after almost a decade living in Berlin, Uh, and having studied at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts, and I read an interesting quote from one of your former lecturers about your uh, ability, but they wanted you out of painting. Is is that correct?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) But that's a good thing. Um, You've done such such different um, and more extensive work. But important to note that recent solo exhibitions at uh, the Museo uh, Jumex in Mexico in 2014 and the Musee d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris in 2013. You've done a range of major projects in, in extraordinary institutions, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Kunsthaus Berenz, the Guggenheim Kunsthalle Frederikkanem and the National Gallery of Denmark, of course. So we're delighted to have this opportunity to talk with you. And we'll be talking for around 45 minutes, uh, I hope. And if anyone has... Shall we take questions from the floor as they might occur to people and make it conversational, or would you rather wait till the end? I didn't ask you that question.
1: No, I'm happy to take questions. We'll take
0: questions. If you have a burning question, let's just just yell it out. Um, Jan, let's reflect on your biography. I said to a friend yesterday that one of the things that I have responded very strongly to in your work is that it is at once deeply specific and personal, and and that's reflected in some of the formats of your work and the collaborations, particularly with your family. But on the other hand, it has this extraordinary humanist, existential, universal power of communication, which probably, for me, gives its, its emotional, its aesthetic, and its intellectual reach. And so these deeply personal and universal humanist concerns of yours are defining characteristics of your work. I read a wonderful quote from an interview with uh, Marlene Torp about your interest in, and the beauty you find in cultures and lives that have to build up from ground zero. And in one sense, your family had to build up from ground zero when you left Vietnam. You were born in 1975, you left at the age of four. Could you reflect for us on that aspect of your history? and the, and and the and the movement away from vietnam just to give us some biographical context
1: yeah um so the wave of vietnamese refugees after the american intervention was in 75 and 79 indirectly it's, it's, and that's two different groups of refugees the 75 was more the one that had like a very um tight connection to the americans um and in 79 it was when vietnam went to war or there was a conflict between cambodia and vietnam and the chinese um supported cambodia and vietnam lost that war and cre- and that created like another like disaster in vietnam and and gave them second wave of Vietnamese refugees. Um, my family was a part of that in '79, and I went when I was four years old, so I actually don't have any memories of it. Um, I always say though that, and this is probably where I, what I'm interested in when I talk about Ground Zero, because I think in my experience of it, which was a kind of um, The 79 refugees was more the low class refugees. And in my case, it was, there was like, I never experienced any kind of, I mean, my parents never talked about the situation. I think it was psychological for them, a kind of erasing the background because they could only afford to look forward and i think that was always the interesting point for me to refer back to my own history a kind of ground zero which i in today when i look at um, the mass immigration of uh, refugees it is it is um is it it's it's looking forward and i think that's um interesting starting point i think the mistake in people when they have referred to my work as personal, is that this is one part of it. Mm. But the other part is that I think one of the most amazing cities that were built up was Chicago. And that was only possible because it burned down. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you know the story, but uh, Chicago is also called the Donut. So you have all the industrial cities around that never really manage it, so the only thriving city is Chicago. And the only way they could do that was that there was a very bright urban planner that uh, knew that if you wanted like to keep people in in the city, you needed like a clean coastline. And Chicago, like the other industrial cities, were built in the late 19th century and um, they just basically had all the factories along Lake Mi- Michigan mm. and they dumped like all the shit in the lake so it was really polluted. So when Chicago burned down the, the urban planner thought okay, you need to clean up the coastline so what you needed to do was that you had to move the industries another place where there would be water and they moved it to the river. But of course, the problem is that it's a part of Mississippi, so the drain would go back to, to um, Lake Michigan. So that they had to solve. And what they did was basically to reverse the flow of the river, which is mm. just a
0: fantastic thing. <laughs> the You have an abiding interest in architecture. And it was interesting to consider jumping to your recent work in Venice, the way in which you reassessed and 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 participated conceptually and indeed materially in the restoration uh, and return to some of the original design aesthetic and design logic of the pavilion in order for it to work for you. Could you talk to us about the interests in the architecture and design as we saw them in evidence in the, Danish, um, in, in the Danish pavilion work, and, and then just the, the rationale behind that in terms yeah. of your final installation. Um,
1: it, w- it was a very simple, uh, I mean, I think the reflection behind it was really my own doubt of national representation. And I've seen too many national representation where it gears up to this, you know, you build, like, extra space or you make the roof into <laughs> extra room. Yeah. And uh, and when I looked into the pavilion, that was very site-specific. And I was really interested, and I think also there was another thing which really irritated me, the way that the biennial, uh extended its... Um, you know, the opening, like, uh, the month of openings. Mm. You know, in the beginning it was like two months, like from June to August. Summer. Only. Summer, yeah. And now it's like from, what, May till November. November, yeah. And uh, we know the reason. And and I was just, it, it really, you know, like it, it... For me it was strange because when I looked into the pavilion, it was really builded. To last only for the summer months,
0: because of the light, because exactly. of the use of natural light. That's Yeah,
1: fine. and I really love natural light for exhibitions. It it really gives life to sculptures. So I wanted somehow to to keep that, and then avoid like the problems of of the pavilion had to be open in November, which of course would cause problems that that there wouldn't be enough light because one of the decisions I would make was to take all, out all artificial lights because the, when you have built an architecture f- to not have artificial light, then it it's a very big problem to try mm. to add artificial lights in. So it was in that way very practical.
0: And then you reduced the opening hours of the installation as the light began to fade, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful conceptual exercise to limit access <laughs> to the daylight these, hours. all
1: these details yeah. is a part of creating, like a sculpture, I would say.
0: A, a, holistic, a holistic enterprise, that's exactly what you created. The sparsity of the objects in the space was a particularly startling and very beautiful encounter. One of the things I'd like to talk about is the... Connection between two things: one, the title of your exhibition in Venice, "Mother Tongue," suggesting a native uh, tongue, a native language. And I know you've questioned the uh, reality and validity of the term "native" before. And then "slip of the tongue," uh, the the group show. We'll we'll come to that. And I'd, I'd, just to reflect on those two two terms in relation to language. But one of the things that was most startling about "Mother Tongue" was the press release. Lent out, by, sent out by the Danish Foundation for the Arts, which was basically a, a record of the dialogue of the demon that uh, has taken over Reagan in *The Exorcist*, and it's possibly the most difficult confronting for the night for 1973 dialogue of any film, and remains very confronting in dialogue, for, particularly because of the. Re- The religious references, and you you titled several works very provocatively. One might argue, after some of the more very difficult terms, can you reflect on the use of terms and that particular text from the Exorcist, the nature of the demon, the demonization of people? What was what was the rationale behind that particular reference?
1: (laughs) You know, like, I I think if there was like, I mean, I would not use like Angel's voice to write a press release, (laughs) I think that wouldn't be so interesting. I think in so many ways, the beauty of the um, demon talk is, of course, that it can incorporate all these identities, which is the plot of The Exorcist. Mm. And which always really had an attraction to. But it was, you know, like, I I have to admit that the whole, the titles and the speak of the team came after the sculptures. I actually did the sculptures before, and it was actually a friend of mine that somehow came up with it because (laughs) I was, uh, you know, I showed him the sculptures and. And you know, like I told him that it always, always. I mean, so the background of these sculptures is a bit boring to talk about, but uh, so I chopped most of it off. It. I wanted like to build layers of histories on them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have reference to Roman and um, to antiquity, to Roman uh, times, and I wanted like Christianity in over that have you know, taking over the Roman uh, Empire and then I wanted actually to have things on top of it from present. I just never managed, you know, so I had like done some of these sculptures and there was one of them with these baby legs and there was like a head of Madonna and was twisted and, and looked really weird and I showed this to my friend and I told him, you know, like the problem that I always wanted to add something contemporary on it, but I just never found it. But it always reminded me of The Exorcist, and he was standing behind me, and he was like, "Your mother's a cocks in hell." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> totally in, uh, you know, it's a moment resonated. of inspiration, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it totally made sense, you know. <laughs> so we,
0: to it, t- t- so that was how it came about. Because one of, the, one of the factors in the, or, or one of the, the strange dichotomies in the work in Venice, particularly the, 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 the hybrid sculptures where different parts from different histories, different cultures are, are jammed together in, in a kind of a monstrous hybrid, no matter how aesthetically beautiful they might have been. That degree of conflation and the merging of different times and cultures is part of what Jörg Heiser from Fries very recently referred to as, as the web or the thicket of references that you pack into your work to try and talk about the interconnectedness of time, history, biography and bring it up to a contemporary moment. And, and that web... Of references and histories and times is something that's particularly profound in your work. I think mm-hmm. the, the one of the most beautiful works in the Venice installation for me, um, amongst many, uh, but it was so isolated and and so lonely in its in its positioning in the pavilion, was the small polychrome of the cherub wedged into the Johnny Walker timber drinks box. Can we talk about that? particular work for a while because you just said something very funny to me before about buying that (laughs) sheriff.
1: Yeah. No, so, I mean, it's, uh, I love, I mean, my love of design is, you know, like, I I love Billy, the Billy Shelves, Mm Makia, like the whole idea of measurement as a part of shipment strategies for containers, and the one that was before that was actually Johnny Walker. It was uh, the first one that invented like square bottles in order for lower the um, um, shipment. That's right, you get more bottles into a box. Of course, yeah. yeah. And then on top of it they invented like this Label on the bottle that would go across, like on both sides, uh, I mean, it's really smart these kind of things, so I always see the like especially the box sculptures, I see them very you know it's like my art historical references yeah. to conceptualism, minimalism, and even you know uh Christianity, and it's all just like compressed into this. Thing, you know. and, um... Well,
0: that's the power of your work. Within two distinct objects, from across time, from across culture, from across rationales, they they have this incredibly multi-layered approach. And we could certainly sit here and con- unpack every conceptual layer to your work, which we, which would be meaningless in a way because your work ranges from the deeply political to the poetic in the in the way in which the, the mash-up of references creates these very new, beautiful holes. And um, I suppose one of the things that I wanted to talk about in relation to the references to various cultures and histories is the term mother tongue. Um, and and then to relate that back to Slip of the Tongue, and we'll talk about some of the content of that exhibition in a moment, because for people who saw it, it was the most marvellous assembly of contemporary artists and some historical artefacts and documents. But can you talk about mother tongue and language and and the reasoning behind that particular yeah. use of the term?
1: You know, like, um, I think we have to talk about those two titles at the same mm, time. We do. Because um, Slip of the Tongue was... Um, taken from an artwork of Nari Bagramian, and it has a total another, you know, reference point. And um, you know, I was working on slip of the tongue first as one exhibition, and then actually the title Mother Tongue came afterwards. And I, at a certain point, I, I mean, I knew from the very beginning that I didn't want the two exhibitions to have like. A, I mean, of course, there would always be. A, Relationship, but that I wouldn't respect it. Um, so, slip of the tongue was this. Uh, are these beautiful sculptures of Nari who who um, created them when she did a show at the Terrace of Art Chicago, Chicago Art Institute, which is a um, it, which is in the plaza where you have all these new high-rise building. And the terrace overlooks it, and uh, she did like the, then these beautiful sculpture called uh, "Slip of the Tongue," but all the sculptures was made um, in reference to penises after ejaculation, and then she titled the work "Slip of the Tongue." You couldn't help it, you know. These sculptures were just like, you know, falling down. I mean, they were just weird, and um, so that's the title. And I, I think also when I, when I did this show, which was a group exhibition or curated show, which was also weird because my works were in it, but that was the condition of it. Um, I wanted like to take the title of a, a work which I thought. Could somehow give a you know good entry point to the whole show national pavilion I think mother tongue was the p- perfect title for that mm. and but only in combination with a press release like the one I did with the demon talk I mean I think these kind of choices for titles and 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 press releases is like when i build sculptures i it's a very simple trick actually it's um it's i really believe in in contradictions and i embrace contradictions i think that's really what a life is about i think that's what we do in in our daily life we are confronted with all these contradictions and i never believed that art was this thing that was straight and made sense. I always believe that what I do in art is to put these weird things that I observe in my daily life and present them, you know, almost as they are.
0: I think that was part of the richness of the experience of the National Pavilion work, and then Slip of the Tongue, and the inclusion of your own work. Uh, uh, it it goes to the merging of artistic practice and curatorial practice and and the conflation of artist and curator, or curator as artist. And it, it gave us a different sense of how you think in relation to the art of your peers or art historical ancestors, not just in terms of exhibition making and your refined sense of arrangement, because let's face it, exhibition making is about... The arrangement of the object in space in which you excel for a whole range of very powerful ends, but how did you? How did that work for you? That that slip between artist and curator in those two projects.
1: Um, I I invited most of the living artists to participate. I'm. I'm. They all were there and we discuss back and forth the placement of the work and all artists are manipulative so you know we all have done like a lot of group exhibitions and know how to create space for mm. the work but i think it you know like things just have to make sense you yeah. know
0: and and uh did you, look, did you work with, particular, um, uh, there was one thing that struck me and it, it, it probably struck most Australians because it's notorious in this country and almost two decades ago now, it seems hard to believe, we had uh, a notorious instance of the closure of an exhibition because of an attack on an Andre Serrano rendition of Piss Christ which you retrieved, or didn't retrieve that particular work but it... it seeing that included in your show reminded me of the range and complex responses to that work when it was shown here in 1997 and mm-hmm. uh, could could you reflect on your use of some of the, of that work particularly and and why there were there were a number of very overt christian references in throughout the show
1: yeah i mean you know like that I think, Piss Christ, and I think certain works of Andres Serrano is just, I mean, they were a very big reference point to me, not only of because of the iconography of it, but one thing that people, I mean, you know, like we forget a lot, so one thing that people don't see in his work is actually what I find really important, is that when he created these works, they were like living in i mean you know he he came from very poor background, mm. and he was really one of the one of the artists in the nineties from East Village who live in totally poverty and believe that you had to, you know, that you shouldn't put yourself in a box or you shouldn't let people put yourself in the box because that's what happens when you're a foreigner, when you are... I mean, I always compare him with Felix Gonzalez-Dores who always did, would had the same strategy that you had to use a form that disguised itself to be inserted as a virus into the system. Mm. And that was what Andres Serrano did too. One doesn't—I mean, it's not many people that knows that all these photographs, like *Peace, Christ*, *Black Madonna*, *Blood*, whatever—they were made in a one small apartment in a small aquarium. That was his studio. And he would buy blood, or he would buy, or he would pee in it, or whatever, yeah. and then buy these souvenirs and plumb them in and take these photos. Mm. His studio was not bigger than an aquarium.
0: Well Piss Christ was his, I had dinner with him and it was his urine and he had to drink, he, he said he was sick <laughs> to death of orange juice <laughs> because it was just a big deal because, but he had to make it and, yeah. and that was the only way he but could th- make it.
1: And that That's the piece in itself but it was like these artists and at that time Tim Rowling too and KOS who really believe, and I think all these artists were such a important um, influence for me, this idea that you shouldn't let people place you in the corner.
0: And and th- that's clearly been a, a, a motivating factor in your own practice and your free range across so many art historical and design references in your work. I mean, can we talk for a moment about a work that has a very specific reference, We the People, which has been much written about, which is your one-to-one casting of the Statue of Liberty in around, what, 300 pieces? Uh, Dispersed. Can you talk about that work?
1: <clears throat> yeah, because it's actually an extension of... Uh, you know, what I just said about Andre Serrano. Because it, you know, like, I had... you know, like, I, it was... I think in 2010 or something, and I had like done some notable shows and, you know, there was text written about my work and and there was this framing that started to happen. Things like, you know, I did, I was, that it was, my work was, you know, private, uh, or it took departure point from my private life. And that I were able to deal with these empty spaces and you know that kind of stuff, and I was invited by Rein Wolf, the curator direct the director of Fred, which is in castle where documenta is, mm-hmm. so it's like this the big space, and he was the one that um Told me usually they would do three solo exhibition at the same time, but I was so, you know, have seen exhibitions of mine where I was good in dealing with big spaces without filling it up, and these are the categorization, categorization, that you, the people starts to put you in. You know, a friend of mine always told me that. You know, I never came out of the closet in order to be put in a box. And I think that's very true, Mm. you know. Mm. So, I had like this... uh, Also a childish thing where I thought, okay, then I should really fill that museum up with something, (laughs) you know. And... um, And it was a way of breaking out of this image that people were... That started to happen around me. And...
0: Did it result, however, in overtly political texts around the use of that iconic form and its fragmentation? No,
1: because, you know, publicly I could say outrageous things, you know. Sometimes I would say, you know, like, that I prostituted the liberty, you know. And people still would refer to it as my background as immigrant or whatever, <laughs> so I was just like I, I thought, okay, I'm not going to go there anymore, you know, it doesn't matter what you say because it, you know, people have a certain image of things but, you know, like and my references was totally different I, you know, I read beautiful texts about reasons of why liberty had to be a woman, you know mm. and uh, oh, I forgot the name now it's a f- fantastic writer, but she always stated that uh, liberty had to be this big, presented as this big woman, because she needed to be passive and empty, so people could project whatever they wanted into it. And you know, I thought it was it was more the research into it that really triggered fantastic ideas for me, uh, you know, like thinking for me.
0: And what has happened to that? Well, I mean, it's dispersed. Is it integrated now as one group of objects, or is it st- still dispersed around various centers? Because it, it had, it's had a fairly broad itinerary. Yeah,
1: but I always said that it was, you know, a creative Frankenstein that got its <laughs> own life. I mm. mean, it was so overscaled and logistically, it was not even material wise, it was logistically, there was a kind of over my capacity. So I think it really created its own life which I think also is the beauty of it
0: that that aspect of creating its own life of activation there is something in your work that is very powerful in the way it activates the viewing body and and the participation of the viewer it it in its quietude and it, and its it's aesthetically beautiful installation your work demands of the viewing body a very active form of participation. It, it, is that a conscious um, part of the, the conceptual planning of your work, that the performing body around that work, the, the, the viewers encounter with this, because of the, sp- the, the sparseness of the spaces, the way that a single object can occupy a, a, a space that is going to become public, that is going to be used, that is going to be filled with viewers thinking and seeing? is the performance performative important no i mean i i i never believed that i could control the
1: viewer i you know i i i was never so conscious about these kind of things i mean i i never install because of the viewer uh-huh. i install because i believe in certain things and whatever that creates is That's what's so beautiful about art, that you work with something and that there's this person out there that might engage in it. Mm -hmm. And I always found that the most beautiful thing about art. And that's what we have to always try to do, whether it's a failure or it, it would happen. But that's what we have to believe in, I think i don't think anything really matters otherwise
0: no i mean but the well the integrity of the object itself is is paramount and i mean the the thing about your sense of space i i read the other day that you're not terribly interested in the white cube is the white cube something that you've avoided in favor of more Interesting historical spaces, or is it something that you've just who, had to balance? Who, who, uh, when y- did you read you that? said it in you said it in your interview with Marlene. Talk did I? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, <laughs> I actually
1: thought yeah, maybe in you know. But I would, um, when I started to exhibit, I thought the most maybe I mean maybe not that I think white cubes are the best basis, but because of practical reason. Mm. I I think in the beginning of my practice, I looked very much into film, but I could of course not do sculptures like film could be. I was always a very practical-minded person, so I would say, I would think, okay, if this is my space, if this is my profession, that I have to exhibit mostly in white cubes, How? What quality is it that the YQ possess that we can make use of? Mm. And um, this is a while ago because at that time nobody really knew my work or background. But that was really, I must say, that actually I miss it a lot. That at the time I con- I concluded that the quality is that it has the ability of amputating meaning. That was also the reason that White Cube was created. And I th- really thought I wanted to make use of it because I, was, I never believed that, you know, you can put an object into a space and it would mediate something. But what you could do is that you could put something in a White Cube and you can create a estrangement towards another person. And at that time, I really believed that that was the perfect communication, the estrangement between you and the viewer, because I thought there was such much... Uh, there was this beautiful reflection of...
0: of society in so many ways. So that the relationship is only between the object and the viewer, the artist has retreated to the background in a way?
1: No, I mean, I, I really believe that the work that I was working with had a certain meaning. Mm. But that of course was all these you know, that like, there wasn't that there was I mean that there wasn't a bridge to commun- communicate it because there's all the differences mm. in between. And I think there was really there was something that was so interesting for me that that you illustrated the bridge and like the the non communic you know, the the non-bridges, you know, and
0: well, it's a communi- it's a its a—it's a communication link. It's a link of—it's a communicative link. That's what you're talking about. We can move on to another communicative link, and that is the one that you have with your father and his participation in your work, which I find intriguing and quite mm. beautifully wrought in a number of different ways, particularly in your use of and homage to his marvelous calligraphy skills and the. Again, the use of documents and historical records in your work as poetic signs of sometimes troubled times. And I was particularly interested to learn about the very special contract that you established with the Walker Art Centre in relation to the tombstone for your father that is part of the Walker collection temporarily and your father's artefacts. Can you talk about that relationship you've established with your father? He's very special to your practice.
1: Yeah. Um, I do uh, It's really. I mean, I, I. I will talk about the letter first mm. because otherwise it becomes too complicated. But uh, I don't know if most of you know that Vietnamese was the only language that was, was transcripted into Latin. Uh, it was done by the French, but it was supported by the National um, Socialists because phonetic transcription is easier to learn than chinese pictorial uh, which vietnamese was before so anybody today that writes or reads in vietnamese they do it in in, in latin um, my father like most vietnamese in his age has like a, a very beautiful handwriting but of course when he came to Denmark since he didn't, I mean he didn't speak French or English and he barely learned Danish. So he never really used like his handwriting. He had like these small food shops that uh, he earned money from. So I knew it from the menus he would write, you know, it would be a burger for 24 kroners or whatever. That's one thing. When I was in residency in Paris I learned more into the history of the Catholic missionaries that went to Vietnam and in Korea and China in 19th century Um, and most of them before Vietnam was colonized got executed in a period where it was not allowed to um, do missionary work in Vietnam, and I found he's actually one of the most famous saints uh, that was working in Vietnam, and he would write like all these letters to his family before he was executed, Mm -hmm. and I found like then this one letter, or actually the last letter that he would write to his own father, and you know things just suddenly make sense, you know, I could use my father's handwriting, and there was, I mean, there was all these content and possibilities, and that created the work, which structure is that anybody that buys it, it costs like, you know, 200 euros or 300 euros, then I send him 100 euros, and uh, he just sits at home and writes it, you know. And he sends it, he has the same. Send he it. sends it, yeah. Uh, he, so what he... <laughs> I mean my family is very Catholic, but I never told him because I wanted really the work to be about labor, so I never told him what he was writing. But he have like this website with other expat Vietnamese, so he got a Vietnamese that speaks French to translate it. So one year later he would call me up, you know, and he would like, "Young, why did you never tell me that I'm writing? this letter from a very important saint, you know? And it was like, I mean, whatever, I mean, it was not the thing. So he started himself to send it, you know, when my niece or nephews have birthdays, he would send that one, you know? Or churches he likes around. So this is also one of the projects that just mutates and yeah. becomes something else. But to go back to it, I think, why this project has been so important for me is really this idea of connection mm. and i think what is for me was important within the project was that it was not that we were trying to understand each other it was and that was why i wanted to emphasize on the labor within the work that it it is through labor that we are connected, and whatever mm-hmm. else comes along, that's the, that's what, is a part of the project. But it was not that he understood it, or I mean, you know, even that he understood he was writing this Catholic missionary letter. It, we can only engage with our own references, but it's connected through labor. And I thought that was such a. I mean, that's really what I want to make art for. Uh,
0: there's a very beautiful conundrum in that detachment because it, your work is so much about interconnectedness. And, th- and that's why several writers have talked about this marvellous web of ideas and references that construct me, the me, that is you, and by extension the we, that is us. And, and it's this, the me to we which is very important um, in our understanding of your motivations and the, and the power of your work. I haven't got a watch on so I've got no idea of the time but does anyone have we might just suggest if there are any questions. Does anyone have a yes
1: Hello um, I know you've had um, some problems with the market and I wonder how you reconcile in your practice um, being quite generous with like your own you know histories and subjectivity and how that in with your market engagement and how you kind of like have come to feel comfortable or whether you do feel comfortable or just navigate that? Mm, I, you know, like, I, th- I think it you know, one cannot one cannot um, the crazy part of an artist. Uh, career, in certain cases, is that you can go and you starve, you know, that you basically don't earn any kind of money, and then suddenly you deal, sometimes, some situations for certain artists, that you deal with some of the most crazy economies, and if you survive that, it, you know, it's 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 a kind of crazy thing the distance like the distance I um. I have had a lot of friends that didn't want to deal with economy I always believe that that's a trap in itself I think if you're not aware of it somebody controls it Mm. and um, I think that's a choice one have to make when you if you sit in the situation, but it's not something you can calculate, I think, although I know certain of my colleagues' ambitions, but uh, I don't think I think that's out of your control
0: other questions for Ya? yes, this so one up here.
1: because uh, John Calder have been interested in doing something with me and I really want I mean I know the projects and I have a very deep respect for it and I really want to engage in it and uh, then through John Calder I met Naomi and then you know like then one thing takes the other and then I'm sitting here (laughs)
0: For a very brief period of time, unfortunately, because you're off in a couple of days. Yes, there's a question down here. I'm interested in your
1: collaboration with um, uh, Jamie Stewart as well. Can you talk about how that sparked? Yeah, I mean, you know, like... When I was younger, I was really addicted, you know, I was really into the music. And at a certain point, you know, I mean, he had some very nice texts I thought my father should write. So my father did that. And uh, I think somebody told me, uh, him about the project, that this old Vietnamese guy was writing all these crazy texts. And he contacted me and we became friends. But, you know, like it's. uh, yeah, I, I think that was how it happened. Like, I think a lot of these were references Christianity. What my... No, 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 but my father, he... You know, like, the letter of the missionary is one thing, but I, somehow my father became as queer as me, you know?
0: He just writes whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Has that been a liberating thing for your father? This this we don't connection. really talk about it, no, I mean,
1: about it? yeah, it's that's really the you know, like I mean, when I was younger, I had hope that I could convince my father of certain ideas of life and that I could sit and you know think that we would meet agree on something, I think at a certain time in life, I thought, you know, forget that, you know. <laughs> but um. Uh, but now we have this really fantastic relationship where he you know we don't need to agree on things we just do it you know or <laughs> he does it or and i think that's uh, I, I really I,
0: I really like that it sounds like a form of empowerment for him th- th- in a way this, this sort of yeah from both sides honoring it's his skill yeah yeah
1: yeah but in different ways you yeah. know yeah. and uh, yeah i mean it's still on, ongoing so
0: let's see on the payroll <laughs> It's after seven and I'm conscious of time. Are there, there's a question? We'll have maybe just a, this one and one more, if someone can someone one.
1: Um, I'm, I'm coming from a perspective of history and I'm curious about um, your, the Vietnamese connection in Denmark as a community and also have you found through your art a freedom from the immigrant paradigm or being labelled or read as such? yeah I mean it's exactly what I don't believe in you know because I mean yeah are we talking you know like you know m- this website that my father sits and talk with, with all these crazy expat Vietnamese, that are totally, you know, they... My father have forgotten, like, how it was, you know? And then suddenly, they're sitting and gearing each other up and talking about how the communists took the country, you know? After 20 years or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you look into it, are we talking about the Vietnamese, radical Vietnamese, in orange country, <laughs> a county, in? California that totally, you know, voluntarily sending their kids to Iraq because they believe that if, you know, Vietnam was not safe, so at least we should save Iraq, you know? Or we're talking about East German-Vietnamese that were working labor for for East Europe or the Parisian refugees and Are not refugees but educated people that were sent in 68 to Paris that you know when I try to speak French with them or Vietnamese with them they get really offended so you have all these diaspora and Mm -mm. you know I mean I really don't believe in this unified any unified um, identity projected in nationality or (laughs) Any other things, you know? I think it's a weird, weird categorization. I understand that you can feel comfort in drawing borders, but uh, I really don't believe that it's uh,
0: reality. And the scu- and the, the the format of your sculpture addresses that very concept of no fixed identity, time, place, etc. It, it it it's the conundrum of identity that you seem to deal with in those combinations of incongruous sometimes forms. Yeah, yeah. One more question before we thank Yar. Does anyone have a final comment or question? If... Yes? Hi, I wanted to ask you about um, the work that you were commissioned to make. I wanted, I wanted to ask you about the work that you were commissioned to make that was then rejected by the, a collector, no. and you had some kind of sweet revenge oh, Natalie, by making a that. work with an inscription, <laughs> shove it up your ass, you faggot. Can you discuss that incident?
1: That takes at least an hour.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've got the summary here. But
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, that was one of the things, I mean, it was terrible to uh, to be dragged into. It was, you know, like, he thinks that I agreed on making an installation. I believe that I came to visit a museum and were thinking of making something. And then you get dragged into a lawsuit. And it was just a waste of money and time. But I... You know, like, I mean, yeah, it's it's. Um, it was, I learned from it, <laughs> and I. What I can say is actually I, I. What I, I regretted a bit, like uh, that I didn't go full on with it. There was like. When that happened, and I sent this proposal out because I was so i mean it had lasted a year, and you know I had to go to shitty Holland in court cases with this shitty law system, and I was so tired of it, so I thought okay, if he really wanted a work, I will send him one you know? <laughs> and that was the proposal and uh there was this guy, a friend of a friend, who, um, I mean, I think he was one of the person of CA, like this big retail company thing, but he had experience like to have his whole family suit, so, and he was fighting it, so he really hated like the Dutch system too, because his company was in, I mean, I have no clue, I mean, at five countries or whatever, so he fought like this lawsuit in five countries. And he called me, and he was like, "Young, are you aware that you are having gold in your hands?" <laughs> you know, and I had no idea of what he was talking about. Um, I was just like so uh, tired of it all and whatever. So when I proposed this, and we went to appeal, the collector basically just withdrew like the whole case, and. That was it, you know? Total waste of time and space. Alex, and let me just finish this off. Alexander meant that, you know, because what was crazy was that, of course, the judge had, in first instance, determined that I actually was in a contractual, uh, uh, verbal contractual obligation to give, like, to create a work without any kind of clarification of what condition that should be so Alexander was actually trying to get me to create a work because I mean in initially the possibility would be that either the collector had to accept to get the work and pay me the money or he would determine that the work that I've created was not a work of art Mm. so suddenly the, the, the law had to sit with a problem, you know? And I regret to this day that I didn't continue with that to see what would have happened because that would really have created like a precedence, Mm. a great, you know, um, interesting precedence of how lawmaking could interfere with the art.
0: Well, Jan, thank you for what you do to redefine the work of art thank you for your time it is so good to have you here and it's been such a privilege like so many people i just loved my experience in in venice in 2015 um thank you so much we look forward to what might eventuate in your caldor project uh please join me in warmly thanking Jan. Thank you all. And thank you, M Pavilion, for this great series of talks. Exactly.
1: Thank you. <laughs>